Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back to Africa's a Country Talk, or in short, AIAC Talk. This is episode 23, which is only our second one of the new year. We got back and running last week. And as usual, if you don't know my face by now, I'm William Shorkey, and I'm streaming to you live from Johannesburg. And as usual, I'm doing so alongside the much more beautiful, the much more better looking Sean Jacobs, who's all the way in New York, looking really nice and smart today. I like, the, I like how clean the, the appearances today. And today we are the co-presenters of this, which is Africa is a country's weekly discussion and interview show. And as always, our wonderful producer is Antoinette Engel, who's in Cape Town, South Africa. So if you missed last week's episode, which was our first episode of 2021, uh, we were joined by Sal Pravola and Indira Govinda to discuss the politics of vaccines, who's making them, how they're being distributed, who's afraid of taking them and why. It was extremely helpful for anyone as confused as we were by the quick pace of vaccine-related developments and the climate of so much uh, disinformation. And you can watch clips of that show on our YouTube channel, as well as the full episodes and the entire archives on, on our Patreon, to which you can uh, subscribe, Patreon forward slash Africa as a country. Today's program is devoted to the life the thought and the legacy of the Pan-Africanist and revolutionary Amilcar Cabral, who was assassinated in Conakry, Guinea on January 20th, uh, 1973. Uh, we'll be joined by Antonio Thomas, a scholar of Cabral and an author of a new biography about him to talk specifically about his social and political thought, but also about the limits of his ideas. And then we'll be joined by Ricky Shryok, who is a journalist based in West Africa in Dakar, will come and talk about the role of women, the, woman, the role that women and ordinary people played in Guinea-Bissau's liberation struggle, uh, as well as its contemporary politics. Ricky, by the way, is one of our inaugural Africa's a Country Fellows. Uh, we, give out 10 fellow, we gave out 10 fellowships last year and we'll announce the next competition soon. So be on the watch uh, for that. So before that though, Sean, um, the world today is, you know, not much different, but kind of different from the world we had last week because as of Wednesday, America has a new president. And whenever that happens, no matter where you look, all manner of publications, pundits, and people are always asking, what does the new administration mean? And unfortunately or fortunately, we're no different. So maybe let's start by asking you, Sean, because you're an African in America, uh, what do you think this Biden presidency is going to mean for the continent? Is it going to mean anything, any change? Should we be excited? Should we be skeptical? How should Africans approach the change of power in the United States? Right. You can see me sort of shrugging, kind of like shaking my head, going like, oh, you want me to talk yeah. about this? I don't know. I think it's that sort of, there's a cottage industry of like every time an American president comes in or leaves that people write this kind of post or essay or or they write like an Abed, which is kind of like, you know, I don't know, Barack Obama, what does he mean for Africa? Or uh, now, you know, then it was Trump, and now it's Joe Biden, if you're just thinking of the last three. And it usually, I think, ends up with this kind of sort of symbolic, it's very much symbolic politics. First black president or, 
you know, or in the case of Trump, it's like he's not going to do much or et cetera and so on. But I think the, the hardcore stuff is really, I don't think much change changes usually between American presidents. Um, America, you, you have to sort of just kind of go back to like why the U.S., how the U.S. thinks about itself and its, yeah. its reason for existing. It thinks of itself as, you know, the most important country in the world, that it is this like shining city on a hill, that it tells people how to be, how to be, a, how to be democracies, especially. I mean, as we know, <laughs> that, that hasn't worked out so well for them um, over the last, I would say, like 50, 60 years, like, although some people would think it was very dramatic um, about uh, two weeks ago. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, I, I think one, one doesn't expect much. I think it's more um, what, whether, whether anything's gonna change about how Africa features in how the US, the, the US's preoccupation now, right now, which the main one is still, I think, the war on terror. Um, secondly, I think around energy, around energy politics, you can ask like, you know, like how does Africa feature in that? If you just take war on terror, you could think back to the election in Uganda, which is, I, thought, I, don't, I think you heard something from sort of the local ambassador or local representative saying something about Bobby Wine being, being you know, uh, detained or saying something about a little bit about irregularities with, with the election. But in the main, you know, the U.S. goes along. It goes along with Museveni yeah. winning power again. So I don't, I don't expect um, uh, uh, much. I think that the thing that I'm actually, that I've been fascinated about, which we don't read, in these sort of like, what does Biden mean stories um, is really kind of like, who's gonna make, who's gonna make money? Um, who are the lobbyists that are gonna become important? What kind of ideological politics um, is coming in? And there's a publication that, that, that I really like more recently that I read called Africa Intelligence. Um, and they ran an interesting story actually, um, I think about like at the end of last year, uh, called um, Albright Stonebridge, an incubator for all things African um, at Biden's disposal. And it's really about a, a, a consulting firm called Albright Stonebridge, which is, was created in the early 2000s by Madeleine Albright. And that's become apparently the, the go-to place uh, for high-level American officials with African expertise. So Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who I think Biden appointed her to the UN, she comes from that place and a number of other people. And you'll see some strange names pop up up there. I think we were speaking about this before the program. I saw Majanki Gumbi, Gumbi, who used to be an advisor to Mbeki, to Tabo Mbeki in South Africa, that she's also part of the setup. So I think like those for me is like probably why I think the more interesting things around this happens, which you're not gonna read about in these sort of recycled you know, pieces, which is almost like, a, what do you call that thing where you, a mad lib, where you just put like, words in, you know, like, I don't know, you replace Liberia with Ghana or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's I think that's totally correct. I mean, that's exactly my attitude as well. And I think for me that the thing that's sort of drew me insane, especially in South Africa, is that there's a lot of people who are talking about how since Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, is married to a South African woman, Melissa Cohen, they're like, Oh, oh I didn't know that. He's married to a South African woman. And people are like, oh, South Africa and the continent is going to have a mouthpiece in the White House. And I just think that a lot of the excitement about this administration, as you've already indicated, is completely unwarranted. And I think what's interesting to see is how Americans are reacting to the presidency. So a lot of mainstream liberal commentators 
are celebrating it as some sort of return to normalcy. One line that absolutely annoys me is a lot of people. What kind of normalcy? Yeah, exactly. And a lot of people are saying, oh, politics can now be boring again because with Trump, it was just too much spectacle, too much chaos and too much instability. And I think that there's this disjunct between the world that people want to return to, the status quo ante, which, by the way, was also as unstable and as chaotic yeah. as the world Trump entered into and the world that Biden's entering into, which is as chaotic and as unstable and as that relates to the continent, I think it'll be interesting to see how they're going to treat what is going to be more and more years of instability in Africa. I think that right. the world over is in this period where citizens across the world are demanding systemic change. And so this return to the mainstream liberal democratic consensus is not possible anymore. And how are they going to respond to that? How's the Biden administration going to respond to another wave of MSARS if it happens? How are they going to respond to the protests we've seen in Tunisia this week on the 10th anniversary of the Arab Spring, where a lot of Tunisians are saying nothing has changed? How are they going to respond to this sort of period of permanent discontent and uprising revolt that we're, we're entering into? Are they going to be willing to, to make the changes that are necessary to encourage other states to make the changes to reform international institutions like the IMF and World Bank. I don't know. Um, so it's it's just, I'm in a position where I'm feeling like it's really hard to predict. Yes, here's, here's what I want to see. Here's what I want to see. There's this great video of Joe Biden, I think in 1985 somewhere. It's at a congressional hearing. He's a senator. And it's the discussion is South Africa, South African apartheid. And George Shultz has to appear before the committee. And Biden, I mean, I'm going to do a very bad impression. <laughs> But he's like pointing fingers and shouting and saying things like, who are we standing with? Because remember, this is like, you know, Ronald Reagan, uh, Chester Crocker, constructive engagement. South Africa is our kin, kitten kin, like Rhodesia or whatever. You know, well, Zimbabwe, it was already Zimbabwe. But, you know, that sort of old school um, white America allied to, to, you know, their white brothers and sisters, I suppose, in Africa. But anyway, so to Biden themselves like, we need to stand with the people of South Africa, the black people. I was like, yo, where? I, if, if, if I, so if you if you if you're not gonna do this usual sort of neg, you know, like, uh, what, what what can we expect? Then the kind of the one I want to see is is, um, is if I could see a little bit of that Joe Biden. You know, some people are saying some of the executive orders he signed, except from the more sort of symbolic things, is that he has done. He's showing maybe a, a, a he might actually turn out to do to be an interesting leader. But in any case. We can go on talking about <laughs> Joe Biden. Um, uh, a reminder to hit the, 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 the to hit and hit the subscribe button on YouTube, as well as follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, and please subscribe to our Africa to our Patreon, where you can access all of all of the shows, um, uh, uh, all, all all the episodes of Africa's a Country, and where you can also help fund Africa's a Country in general. So let's move on then to today's program, which we really excited for, and I can see people in the comments. Um, I, I think they're here for that, so let's not belabor this. Um, on to our first guest, he is um, Antonio Thomas. Um, I think he's going to appear on the screen. There he is, actually, great. He's joining us from Johannesburg. Um, Antonio is an anthropologist, trained at Columbia University in New York. And he currently teaches at the Graduate School of Architecture at the University of Johannesburg. Using newly available archive resources, Antonio has just written a new biographical study 
of the life and thought of Antonio Cabral. Sorry, Amolka Cabral, Antonio Cabral. Amolka Cabral called, um, see, as he became, he came like one person with the person he's right now, called Amilka Cabral, uh, the life of a reluctant uh, nationalist, which is coming out this year with Hearst. Um, so why don't we start here, Antonio, given how much of a revered and an interesting figure um, Cabral is, um, so many people have written about his life. Why did? Why do we need another book? Like, what? What is? What is it that you try to bring to the table? Uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Africanizer, uh, for having me to talk about Cabral. Uh, I think um, a lot of people have written about Cabral, Olivier Matthias, and so on. But I think there are a couple of couple of uh, Things about my uh, about about my it's it's it's, it's everything started a couple of years ago when this book was published in in, in, in Portuguese and then I in these ten years or so I have been working on the on the on the English version and one of the things very interesting I don't know if it's interesting but it's different about that is that uh, first of all I'm one of the first one of the few persons who to write about Cabral who was born after Cabral was, was dead, right? He was, he was killed in 73. And I, I, because I think this generation question is, is very important. Uh, this is one thing. The other thing, I also tried to capture or to give a new perspective from a different point of view. Because now that I'm, I'm doing a, a different study on Jonas, on Jonas Savimbi, and I'm trying to follow the debate, you know, between left and right, between, uh, in the US terms, uh, between the, the left review and the national review, you know, and I think that Cabral has been captured in this debate between left, this very Western debate between left and right. So I tried to write on Cabral from an African perspective, particularly from a Lusophone perspective, particularly from the point of view of someone who was born after 75, when the countries uh, that Cabral fought for uh, became independent. So this is, you know, some of the concerns um, that I, I deal with in the book. Before you, before you wrote this book, um, you've been, as you've already spoken about, you've been working on this book for a long time and it's already been released in Portuguese and you wrote a paper for the, a working paper at the time in, I think, 2011 for the Makerere Institute for Social Research in Kampala, where you were based and it was titled Preliminary Thoughts and the Legacy of Urota Cabral. And what I found interesting about that paper is that your starting point for analyzing Cabral's political thoughts and his legacy was his assassination. And what you pointed out, which I actually hadn't known before, was that it was only relatively recently when the historical record was corrected and his assassinators were revealed to be his own comrades rather than the Portuguese. And as you put it, the controversy around Cabral's death illuminates the disjuncture between revolutionary hopes and post-colonial realities. Um, what do you mean by that? And, and why did you think his assassination could sort of operate as this motif for uh, this man and what he would mean for post-colonial struggles in Africa? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Uh, 
Cabral was a revolutionary, right? And a lot of people have written on Cabral. They share the same kind of ideas. They were, you know, with the, 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 the best intentions, you know. They were really, you know, trying to bring change to many places in the world, in Africa, in Guinea, in Cape Verde, in the post-colonial world, and so on. So I really think that a great, a lot of these people of this generation, they are silent in terms of like the day-to-day the, the day the, the -day problems in the, in, in, in the, in the, in the liberated zones during the time that Cabral was fighting. And one of the things that, that they don't do, they don't cover, and I think this is very important, is the, the rivalries between, not just the rivalries between Cape Verdeans and Guineans, but also how, but also how Cabral was in fact part of what he was trying to to, to abolish, because Cabral is is, uh, is 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 was born in Guinea from Cape Verdean parents, but there is a, a long history between Cape Verde and Guinea, and there is a, a long animosity because Guineans so so Cape, most of Cape Verdeans as colonizers because the Portuguese used Guineans as a sort of subaltern colonizers because they spoke the the language. They were not subject to indigenato, the native laws. So they would go to, to Guinea as auxiliary of, of colonialism, as Cabral points, and many Cape Verdeans in Guinea. So I think for, for a lot of people, uh, it was like, it, it was hugely important what Cabral did in terms of bringing Guineans and Cape Verdeans together to fight against, uh, against colonialism. But but in the end, the, the tensions were the, the tensions. There were a lot of tensions because a lot of things that should be solved in a different way. Cabral was in fact a, a pacifist, and did, he didn't want to finish the the war through war. You know, he didn't want to fight all the way with the Portuguese until you know until send all Portuguese back to to Portugal. So he tried to negotiate. So what happened was that the, the war became a protected war, it was a long war. And this brought a lot of a lot of a lot of a lot of tensions. And one of the most important tensions was the, the, the animosity between Cape Verdeans and, and Guinea. But in order to deal with, with this question, one needs to know the formation of these countries and also one we need to know a lot of particularities about um, about Portuguese colonialism, how they construct race and how they how they dealt with identity. No, I know I like I like how and I also read I also read the paper. I really like how you kind of get at the sort of how sort of romantic that well let's say, let's say sort of like this this how how your memory circulates in the West. And you can go on YouTube and there's like you know endless like Cabral, this Cabral, that, but it's it's often sort of people projecting onto Cabral, you know, I don't know, like their own struggles in the present, and there's nothing wrong with that, you know, like there's this sort of idea of taking Pantara or Chris Carney and and kind of you know or Cabral and putting putting certain hopes and ideals onto them, but one of so you sort of you you kind of um, get, 
you know, gotten a little bit into it, but I think it would be useful to say a little bit more about this kind of this this attempt by Cabral to to arrive at something that is kind of a national identity. This sort of idea, like you know, we have we must have a national culture, um, and then at the same time, he and a lot of people quote and read those things like the same way they read Fanon on national culture, they read Amilcar Cabral on it. But I think what I like what you're trying to show us is how difficult it was for Cabral to almost. He, he's, in a way, he failed at that, that he didn't really succeed at that. And that, and that, and maybe if you could say, and you sort of alluded already to this kind of tensions between uh, Cape Verdeans, if you want, um, and, and Guineans, but you also, I think you also written about the Balanta, like, you know, all these, it's a little, there's other complications that come into this, that in a way, it's almost like um, Cabral failed with, with that quest. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't, you have a lot of questions here, so let me interest. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that, uh, I will talk about the, the failure or not failure in the end. But I think that the first thing to take into account is that, is the, the sort of romanticization of Kabbalah. I, you know, I, I, I grew up in Rwanda in the 70s, during the war, you know, uh, apartheid, South Africa, Southern Africa, you know, uh, and it was, and it was, and it was really tough. And in Angola back then, was trying to sort of to, to build uh, a, a workers' nation, you know, because Angola was a socialist, was a socialist. So, and I think this is something that 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 my perspective brings to Cabral. You know, it's like this juncture between, on one hand, like the realities, and I think it's parallel to what was going on during the time that Cabral was fighting, right? On one hand, like this amazing dream and hope, let's change the world, you know, equality and so on. And the other hand, um, and on the other hand, um, the, 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 the reality, you know, of, 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 of what was going on. So I think this is, this is, this is, this is part of, you know, like this view is what I, I bring to, um, Cabral, I, to, to Cabral's uh, work. I think the, the, in, terms of, in terms of identity or how Cabral dealt with identity, it's important to point out that Cabral was, was a Marxist. Uh, a, a lot of people dispute that, but if you read what Cabral, how Cabral dealt with, with identity, he was a Marxist. Because Cabral was convinced that, Cabral was convinced that culture was the result of the product of social relations, right? And if you change social relations, you will change culture, right? So what he did to put Guineans and Cape Verdeans to fight against Portuguese colonialism and to subject everyone to the same hardship, he was convinced that he was bringing a new, a new culture because the culture had to be the product of social relations, of, you know, of, of the material, conditions of, of, of the people, right? And I, 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 I think, I, you know, in, in the, in, in the post-socialist era that we live in, I think that it's not, it's not inaccurate, you know, because we, we know that culture is really resilient, you know? And perhaps, it's, but perhaps in many instances, is the other way around, you know? We perhaps rebuild the outside world, material world, through our beliefs, through, you know, through our engagements and so on. 
So I, I really think that this is a problem of analysis. And Cabral was really convinced of that, you know? And I really think that towards the end and what, what happened is also the failure of, of this idea of bringing everything together, everyone together, you know, because of, of the fact that he, everyone was under the, the, same, the same conditions. Of course, there are a lot of other issues around that, you know, the fact that there was no war in, in Cape Verde, only war was only going on in Guinea, so Cape Verdeans were not subjected. The PJSA tried to, 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 to extend the war to, to Cape Verde, but it was not possible because of conditions, you know, all these kinds of things and so on. Now, I really think that Cabral, you know, I really think that uh, Cabral did a lot of things, and the, even the way in South Africa, you know, a lot of, more in Johannesburg than in Cape Town, you know. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you will tell me why. But uh, <laughs> but there is a there is a generation of of of, uh, of people in Johannesburg who read Cabral, who fight Cabral, you know, because there are people that uh, were part of these, you know, ANC, Swapo, the fight against apartheid, and so on. I really think that this is very important, you know, and also I think that what Cabral tried to do because he was a pacifist, he didn't he didn't he didn't want to win through war. And he did a lot of, you know, like a lot of like the social aspect of war. A lot of things that, you know, if you go to Cape Verde or Guinea Bissau today, you still see, you know, some of uh, of what he's he tried to do and ask and actually he would finish if, if he had the opportunity as a, as a little follow on because I know Will has a question um just on this question of do these people who read Cabral now um, and again, like you said, we don't. I don't want to characterize it as like failure. It's 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 not it's not that that you know that's a caricature. But do they do they engage with that with that difficulty that that sort of what what Cabral is experiencing this difficulty of trying to reconcile the sort of like if you want Marxist notion of how we engage with culture and that there are these you know there there's other kinds of identities that people want to foreground that has to do with how they have access to resources. Or, or has to do with how the Portuguese govern and how the Portuguese is co-opting people by sort of various kind of, you know, schemes that are sort of like indirect rule. Do these people that are reading him in Johannesburg or in other parts of in other of these all these young people do they do they do they take on those lessons? I think it's 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 very hard. Uh, it's 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 very hard today um, uh, to. I, 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 and I think that's I think that's what is interesting to talk about Cabral, you know, because of this generational uh, question, you know. Uh, and I think um, and I think David Scott, you know, he has written uh, a lot of, about that in past futures and, and 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 so on. And I think the problem is is really a problem of a problem for a lot of people who embrace this dream, you know. It's it's really a problem to uh, to to sort of filter you know these hopes through what is going on, and I don't think that this past generation is able to do that. You know, if you talk a lot of people, they still in revolution and so on. They still have this dream and so on. 
And for the younger generation, it's really hard to reconcile with 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 um, with, with what's going on back then and, and how people view and how people anticipate the future. Let me just tell with an anecdote. When I was when I was in Guinea, that was like in 2000 for the first time that I was in Guinea to do research on Cabral and interview people. That was too fun. That was really tough, you know. That was when uh, you know Asmani Mane was 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 there, and the, the the Senegalese army invaded the country. That was really you know no flight whatsoever. I had to go through Zimbabwe and so on. And I I I was talking to you know a lot of younger people and so on, and they they could not understand why Cabral. And, and PAE GC had to fight against the Portuguese because the Portuguese they interacted with were like nice people, you know? They were like bringing books and so on. So they could not understand, you know, why we had this long civil war, you know? Why we fought against the Portuguese. And I think for the Cape Verdean is the same, you know, because we know that, like the, the migratory movements, you know, and how the Cape Verdeans uh, a lot of Cape Verdeans, you know, now would prefer to be Portuguese than, than Cape Verde. This is another debate, you know. But I think it's very hard to to bridge to bridge these two sides of the question: dream and reality. And to talk about dream and reality, I mean, I want to ask a question on on Cabral's theory of revolutionary violence, but I want to link it to the question of his ideas of culture. I mean, one thing that I find very interesting about Cabral is that he wants to sort of shy away from understanding culture as this immutable, unchanging thing. So like Fanon, he also wants to think of culture as something that is dependent on a material reality and that material reality is also reciprocally dependent on the cultural reality that it helps construct. And sometimes I, I think that, I think Cabral actually is correct in the sense that it's almost as if people's attachment to indigenous identity arises out of the circumstances they find themselves in where they feel alienated from the prevailing social reality and whether that alienation is from the imposition of a foreign culture during colonialism or that alienation is from capitalist social relations. People cling on to these cultures as a way to find sort of meaning and security in a world that is almost all the time hostile to them. So I think he's correct on that front. I think for me, the front where he was maybe um, mistaken was his answer to how to unify these people who are in search of something that can give them meaning and can give them identity was through the revolutionary struggle. Uh, and his conception of the revolutionary struggle and, and using violence as a part of it was instrumentalist. So unlike, you know, Fanon and Sartre, who were also writing about this at the time, he thought of it as a means to this end. And the means to the end was a national culture and you used armed struggle to get to that national culture. So I'm curious to hear what are your thoughts on his conception of revolutionary violence? And you mentioned earlier that he was a bit of a, of a pacifist. Why was his his default sort of preference for yeah, waging I, I, peace. Yeah, I think 
Yeah, I think Cabral's, Cabral's generation, I think they were pushed, whoa, you know. If you read the, the earlier writings by Cabral in the late 50s and uh, mid, mid 50s, you know, he's, he was not interested in, in, in independence because the concept of independence was not that, you know. For a lot of people, this generation in Angola, uh, Santome, Cape Verde, Mozambique, the idea of independence was, 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 was not that, particularly in Cape Verde for the generation of Cabral, because they were Portuguese. They spoke Portuguese. They, you know, they had all these Portuguese references and, 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 and so on. So the idea that Cape Verde, like these small islands, could be independent from Portugal was not there. It was after afterwards when Cabral was to uh, went to went to uh, went to Portugal, did his studies, met other people from Angola and Mozambique, and so on. Particularly when the you know the Cold War, uh, you know when 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 uh, and and when you know. Places in Africa, African countries started to become independent, uh, Ghana, uh, 57, and then Guinea-Conakry, and so on. That was when they started talking about national, national independence, you know. Only before 56, 50 was not possible. And they tried to negotiate with Salazar, you know, but Salazar was, you know, how can I negotiate with terrorists? It was not even possible to negotiate, you know, because they were not, they were not considered someone you can negotiate with, you know, because the whole idea to negotiate with someone who was humanity you deny was not was not a was not on the table for people like like Salazar. So they had the support of China, Soviet Union, and so on, and they were becoming illegal with no means to subsist in uh, in in Portugal and so on. So I, I really think that they were pushed. Into, 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 into radicalization. And we are talking about the 60s, right? Where Fanon, you know, you, you could write about the violence back in the days in a way that it would put us in trouble if you, if you, if you write about violence in, 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 in a same way. So there was like a sort of, uh, because also, because of the, the Cold War, you know, uh, 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 on one hand, Soviet Union and, 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 the, and US and so on. They were like they were like a sort of a, they were like opportunities, you know. But Cabral was very very aware of that, you know. And I think that that was the reason he tried to find the balance, you know, between like violence and what was necessary to 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 bring independence to Guinea, you know, and and do and do and do something else and build a national culture. Bring education and health to to Guinean and Cape Verdean population and so on. So that was like the sort of trap, you know. A lot of people was caught in back in these years. So to to bring on someone who who's currently working on trying to explore what the perspective of ordinary Guineans and Cape Verdeans were, we're now going to bring on Ricky Shryock who is a photographer and journalist who lives in Dakar, Senegal. And her long-term work as part of Africa's Country's inaugural fellowship includes producing an audio archive of the personal stories of women who fought during Guinea-Bissau's liberation struggle. And she's also creating audiovisual documentation of the role that sacred forests played in conservation and the legal frameworks in Guinea-Bissau. So 
Ricky, thank you so much for joining us and we're looking forward to having you as part of this conversation. So let's maybe talk about this long-term project that you're working on as a starting point. I think what's interesting about liberation struggles in Africa is that they're usually told from the perspective of those great revolutionaries, those so-called philosopher kings like Cabral and Lumumba and Mashal and Nyerere and Nkrumah and so on. And a lot of the time, the perspective of the layperson hardly figures. So in the work that you're doing, what are some of the stories that you're coming across from Guinea-Bissau and women? Um, thank you so much, uh, William. Um, so yeah, like you said, I think one reason I wanted to focus on these kind of stories is often um, we frame a struggle, a liberation struggle from the lens of the fighter with a gun and you know those who are maybe uh, forced to commit violence in the name of liberation. But um, the as you know, people know during Guinea-Bissau and Cap Verde's liberation struggle in Bissau, um, most of the, the fighting happened in the liberated zones where people lived and worked and had families. And so um, it was necessary to get those people on board with the liberation struggle. And so one of the things I wanted to talk about or hear people the stories about was um, the services that were essential to the war effort, the healthcare, the education services, um, the food, the making of the food. This was a guerrilla campaign. So the, the wives of the soldiers were often with them or, or other women, and women did fight um, as well. I, I, some some sources say with, with you know weapons, but I kind of wanted to focus more on how history values or how people look at afterwards that work. So, um, for instance, um, a woman I spoke to recently, her name is Brinson. She was a PJC fighter's wife, and she, her and a bunch of other women were always in charge of cooking. And she told me a story how, um, you know, the pounding of the rice or, or the grain on, on wood on wood, um, pile, I would say in French, uh, was too loud in the liberated zones. It would attract attention. So they figured out, um, in Guinea-Bissau, there are very large termite mines, baga baga. Um, they look like castles, I would say, um, they're, you know, they can be six feet high. So they figured out if you like carved a hole on the side of it and put goat or cow skin around that hole, you could peel the, the food that you needed, you could pound the food you needed pounded in that hole without creating sound. So that's kind of one anecdote I wanted to, you know, mention when, you know, that, that food production in, a, in such an isolated, uh, liberated uh, area that was essential to the war effort, that's, a, that's just as essential as as someone who's carrying a weapon. Um, do you, you, I, have, I have other ones if you want. <laughs> um, you would love to have a glitch and it was gonna be me. It's like my son who <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I, the healthcare workers as well. And uh, one woman I, um, my mana Joanna, I always talk to Joanna Gomez, who's in one of the photos that came up earlier. Um, you know, she was a healthcare worker and she talks about um, during a, a Portuguese bombing, uh, getting shrapnel out of a pregnant woman's uh, chest. And, you know, then then months later she could meet the baby um, that was born, uh, you know, successfully after removing the shrapnel. So those kinds of um, things really kept, they were essential to to the effort because they, they, they helped the sense of community. And they also showed the population why they were fighting um, for a better life, um, as, you know, Cabral often talked about. Let me ask this from both of you. Do you think that this is what this that this is maybe one of the sort of the Guineas haunted by this this sort of obsession with kind of Cabral, who 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 is you know 
who never lived to see freedom, right? He dies before before independence. He's, he gets murdered before independence. And this obsession kind of with these like great revolutionaries. And there's very little about the struggles of regular people when people think about Guinea or what happened after Cabral was gone. Like, can you say something about that? Uh, is it okay, Antonio? If, uh, the, like, uh, okay. Yeah, I think one of the things that I'm, one of the reasons I'm looking at this is because, you know, the healthcare, the education services um, that were so important during the liberation struggle, um, a lot of people now still don't have access to these things, um, especially in the rural areas. So I think um, the kind of sad part is that, you know, those kind of things aren't valued as, as much as maybe they were during the liberation struggle, which again, I think kind of sometimes women say, since it speaks to the, the work that's designated to women, I think sometimes, but, um, you know, uh, I don't know if haunted, I've, I've often wondered that word, Sean, if haunted is the right word, but um, he's very present um, in present day Guinea-Bissau and the liberation fighters, um, you know, I was there during the presidential uh, election in late 2019 and at the say rallies, they, they're, they're a few on stage, they get up, you know, the, the liberation, the people who were in the trenches during the liberation struggle are there at political rallies. And it's it's an amazing poignant moment um, to see these people there. Um, and what does that mean for the country's present and future is, is a bigger question, obviously, but. Antonio? No, I, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, yeah, it's there. There is something that Cabral brought to, uh, to Guinea, you know, and, um, and I, and I talked to a lot of people and I think that you won't find a lot of these in, uh, in Angola because during the war, you know, I think that, uh, in, uh, in, in, in Guinea, uh, I think the war was conducted in a more humane way, you know, because Cabral, didn't put much emphasis on finished the, 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 and on obtaining independence through war. So there is a lot of examples, you know, um, and, and, and a lot of and a lot of histories that people tell uh, that people tell about that, you know, how prisoners were, were treated and so on, and even the the. The women's situation, you know, and and what Cabral tried to do, you know, and to bring back to the question of culture, you know, what Cabral tried to do, like to convince people, you know, that women had to go to school and they had to take, uh, you know, a more prominent role in the conduction, not just in the conduction of the war, but in conduction of life in the liberated areas and so on. So you will find, you know, a lot of these humanization of war. Even even today, even like in 2000, and all the conflicts in Guinea, you know, in a way that I don't think that you will find in uh, in Angola, where I'm from. Just so it's it's interesting to talk about Cabral and his legacy today. Ricky, you mentioned that he's still present in the consciousness of ordinary people, and I want to sort of connect our discussion of the present to what we were discussing earlier, which is Cabral's efforts to try and unify not only the different ethnicity, ethnicities within Guinea-Bissau, but also to achieve unity between that country and Cabo Verde. And Ricky, you just mentioned that you were in Guinea-Bissau uh, during the 2019 election, and it was, it was evident 
reading your writing about that election that maybe South is still haunted by, uh, well, the national question at the very least. And, you know, the title of the essay you wrote for foreign policy is, uh, is liberal democracy always the answer? And obviously, once independence was achieved in 1975, Cabral didn't live to see it, and Guinea-Bissau and became these liberal democratic countries like the rest of the world and marched into the new era. And what I found interesting about this essay that you wrote is that you spoke about how some Guinea-Bissauans, like the presidential contender at the time, Domingo Simus Pereira, felt like liberal democracy couldn't really unite the countries different ethnicities and all of these different ethnic groups or ethnic linguistic groups rather are at, are at different stages of economic and social development. And there needs to be, according to him at least, a better political form for giving them a vehicle to participate in the country's future. So could you say more about this? Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, connected to what we were discussing earlier uh, as well in terms of it still seems like the national question lingers in Guinea-Bissau. And what are, what are people, how are people grappling with that question today? Okay, um, thank you. So I think I'd start off by saying first, I, um, when Sean said earlier that um, Cabral might not have succeeded with, or the, the, I had the question of national identity in, in Guinea-Bissau, I, I would kind of say that there, there, that, he did create a national identity in Guinea-Bissau. When you when you're there, people were very much Guineanses. There there is this sense of we're Guineans first, um, but we still very much are linked to our um, heritage that comes from whether Manjak or Balanta, etc. So I think that's really interesting, especially when you talk about the liberal democracy question, because. You know, some people will say Guinea-Bissau is a place that doesn't work because of, you know, multiple coups or, or things like that. But there are many institutions that work in Guinea-Bissau. They're just often, um, I don't really, I don't want to say informal, formal, but I want to say maybe nationally, like recognized at a federal level or international level. Um, the the idea of... Um, like for, for example, give me an example. Exactly. So this one reason I find the sacred forest work so interesting is because um, I was there, um, my last visit, I was talking to a Palobera, which is a man who um, is kind of in charge of the sacred forest. And he was talking to me about how, um, you know, of course, ceremonies go on there, but also maybe like just legal disputes will happen in this in sacred forest. And um, he will be in charge of kind of mediating that or they'll, 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 they'll fix a dispute in, in that in that arena, in that area. And he said, if we go to the government, we failed. Um, if we have to go to the authorities, we've, we've failed at our job, we are, you know. And I think um, that as an institution works. Now, there are many problems with, with that as an institution working that, that, you know, when it comes to maybe um, women's rights or just certain, certain things, but it does um, do its function, it, it does serve the purpose uh, of, of, of resolving legal disputes in a place where, um, most people don't feel uh, confident in the federal judiciary system or the federal, um, the, 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 the law enforcement. Um, so I think, and of, of course, those are linked with, you know, um, but whether you're Balanta or Manjak or Fulani. Um, so I think bringing all of those um, in systems of governance in, into one system of governance um, is obviously why people like, uh, Domingo Simos Pereira or many sociologists in Guinea um, are asking these kinds of questions. Um, what kind of government kind of works, uh, you know, for us? 
Right. I think you sort of we the next question we actually want to ask what was going to ask you was about skepticism about liberal democracy. Well, but particularly the economic aspects of it, like the idea of like you know these countries are being pushed to see the the microeconomy right as the preferred economic system, and you already you're sort of showing how people are figuring out these things on their own. Is it a fair? Because I mean, again, I find this is sort of a difficult point for me to make. But is this, could we argue that in the case of, say, what Guinea-Bissau is also showing us is that the, the nationalist movement as kind of the, the, the one that is, that, is, that is in charge of the mission to transform Guinea, that that is a failed project? That's the one, that's the one part of it. And on the other end, as you're saying, uh, uh, the free market, of course, you know, we all going to agree, I, I, you know, it's failed. So what's left for Guinea? What's left for Guineans? You are saying what's left is a sort of is, is, is informal and decentralized. Is that the only hope that people have in a place in a country like Guinea? And maybe Antonio, you could also come in here if you want. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm not a political. My 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 shortcomings is that I'm not a political scientist. I'm a journalist <laughs> and I'm a, a recorder of stories. Um, but people's stories, hopefully, so you know, give observe. insight you're, to people. You're seeing things, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. I can. I can tell you what people tell me, and I think. Um, one one reason I'm interested in things like the women's role and liberation movement and the and the role of sacred forests is that. Um, these ways of working are different ways of looking at how we value what we value in our society and whether that's economic or cultural or political decision-making. Um, I think, so I, I think the, the decentralization conversation is happening um, with a lot of brilliant Guinean thinkers in, in Bissau. Um, and so there is that definitely um, effort to try and see how, how that can Serve the regular, serve the regular, save, serve the regular everyday Guinean better. I think, um, you know, I think, you know, when Kabaro talked about the war, they, they said it has to come from the rural. They were scared that afterwards the power would centralize in Bissau, which is what happened. And so I think um, there is an obviously effort to look at that. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question, Sean. Sorry, kind of rambling, but um, oh, you did, you did, you did. Yeah. Um, so I think you know when you. Go ahead, Andrea. No, sorry, no, you can. You can no, no. Can I, I, oh, I just, I, sorry, I just think it's interesting because, like, when you talk to people about sacred forests, again, this is about value systems, and obviously, environmental uh, conservation is very linked with Cabral's history as well. Um, but um, if you talk about the value of those trees, they they will they won't say anything about the economic value or the value even of conserving it in in the traditional way of conservation. Um, that value is because their parents did it and so they do it for their children and and it's this multi-generational idea of value um that you can place on something uh that is i think other societies can learn from that kind of, of uh, framework so i think it's really interesting to talk to people about that yeah one thing to... sorry i was just gonna i was gonna try and and sorry Antonio, you can go ahead you can go ahead my apologies no i just want to uh, I just want to say something about what Ricky was saying. I think uh, uh, Sean asked this and I didn't reply. That was about like the the, the, the ethnic diversity in, in Guinea in relation to the project of of, of national um, national uh, national identity. I really think that you know today Guinea is closer 
you know, to national identity than it was uh, than it was uh, back in the day. Because I, I think that the national state has forms, has tools uh, to build national consciousness uh, that the national liberation movement have. You know, just let's talk just about soccer. You know, what a, a, a football national team can do for a country in Africa. You know, in terms of bringing bringing pride uh, and, and helping bring national. Uh, national national consciousness as well. And here, I would agree, you know, actually with what William was saying, you know, in terms of actually part of part of the idea of, of Cabral, of what Cabral understood as culture, actually, actually happened, you know, because there is a lot of, a lot of stuff that, that started uh, during the war. Even like the the what the, the Creole that um, that a lot of a lot of Guinean talk today, you know, uh, this the, the Creole. A lot of people start to, to, to because Creole was you know came from the Cape region because Guineans they the different ethnicities have their own languages and actually a, a lot of people start to talk, to speak Creole. Even Cabral, Cabral didn't speak Creole before. Before, uh, because Cabral's father, Jovenel Cabral, was a, a, a teacher, and he was against people talking about talking savage language. You know, so even even the Creole only start to grow during during the times of the national of national liberation liberation movement. So there is a lot of a lot of you know elements of national culture that, that started back then. You know. And that's still there So, I mean, I want to ask um, maybe, a, a, I don't know if it's, it's a big question. And, and I, I would ask you guys to bear with me because I wanted to cover a lot of ground related to what you guys said now. So as, as, we've, as we've been discussing, uh, Guinea-Bissau only became independent once Cabral had passed on. Um, but Antonio, as you'd written about before, he was already developing a theory of, of post-colonial criticism, and that was emerging from his observations of other post-colonial African states. So I want to know what the decolonization mean for Cabral, where it's interesting to talk about Creole and language politics in Guinea-Bissau, because we're interested to know how did he conceive of Guinea-Bissau's post-colonial relationship with Portugal, I think what was extremely interesting about Cabral's thoughts is that he thought that Portugal could become an African language. He also thought that Creole was an African language. Yeah. And, and, and not only decolonization, but you know, related to the conversation we're having now about, about uh, you know, emancipatory politics in Guinea-Bissau today, Cabral was a Marxist, I believe so too. And you know, usually Marxists have a a two-stage, especially in post-colonial Africa, a two-stage theory of revolution where it would be the anti-colonial revolution first, and that would bring bourgeois democratic rights to people, representative democracy, and people could vote in you know ordinary elections once every four years, so on and so forth. We see that in Guinea-Bissau now. But did they ever address, did Cabral ever address the question of what's going to happen next? Um, and in Guinea-Bissau today, are people thinking of what's going to happen next? Is there still a yearning for socialism? 
or is it a matter of people sort of reconciling themselves to the market's economy, but thinking of creative ways to expand the social goods that it delivers through to people through decentralized governance and, and so on. So to kind of summarize this big question, which is, you know, what did decolonization mean for Cabral, specifically in terms of, of Guinea-Bissau's relationship to Portugal, but also now that independence has been achieved, is there still hopes for socialism in, in Guinea-Bissau? You both can answer that. Please. And they are I, a big question. I and think uh, Cabral was in a very interesting situation. You know, he was between post-colonialism and colonialism, you know, because he lived in a, in a, in a, in a country and he traveled frequently through many places in Africa, you know, countries that were already independent. Algeria and so on. And he could see, you know, in the late 60s, what Africa was was becoming, you know, with the Taz and in Nigeria and, uh, you know, uh, the dictatorship, uh, his, his host, Secuture, uh, 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 and so on. And the country is fragmenting like Mali and, and so on. So I, I think that Cabral was in this very interesting situation between fighting against colonialism and having access to what would be or what, what, what was already post-colonial post -colonial Africa. But interestingly, Cabral didn't address, you know, the, the shape of, of the state that he was, he was, he was, he had in mind. You know, of course, he had liberated some, and you, you couldn't anticipate what he would do, uh, what he would do uh, uh, politically. Uh, but he was in this he was in this very difficult situation, uh, and, and, and 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 he didn't write about much about that. In terms of the relations at, with Portugal, it's very important to make these the distinction. And I think Cabral mentioned this many times. He was not fighting against the Portuguese, so he didn't have any problems with the Portuguese per se. He was even married. His first wife, Maria Elena, was, was, was Portuguese. And he spent like the perhaps the best time of his life in Portugal, in Lisbon. He was he was fighting against Salazarism. He was fighting against fascism. Now, you know, that we are talking about fascism. Again, you know, that was like what Cabral was. <laughs> that was what Cabral was 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 fighting against because he made this distinction, you know, between people and um, and 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 the ideology. And I think this responds the question of how Cabral didn't address the question of of post-coloniality because he was a pragmatist, you know. Even his relationship with Soviet Union, with US, and so on, with Cuba, trying to get support, with dictators, uh, and so on, you know, he was a pragmatist. He, he was a thinker of the concrete situation, you know, and he didn't spend a lot of time thinking about what Guinea um, um, would become later, later on. Um. 
Is it, should I go? If you, go um, ahead. Yes, please. Yes. No, I mean, I don't think, uh, I, I think the, the few things I've read about, you know, um, him saying uh, at one point he, that he wrote, um, they're building a solid nation conscious of itself. And I think that, that what's really interesting is when I saw that he wrote that, I've, I've never, there are a few places I've been that are more conscious of themselves than Guinea-Bissau. Um, there's, um, and I, I don't, the, the, both in the history of um, their liberation fight, you know, they're surrounded by countries that didn't fight an 11-year guerrilla war. Um, and I think there's, there, that uh, makes them very, um, the reality on the ground very different, obviously. Um, and I think um, that when you talk about um, socialism, I'm going to bring it back to the women again. I think he kind of addressed, too, the fact that you know, um, there was this need, uh, especially in a rural agron um, economy that's very focused on um, uh, agriculture. Um, the women, the women played a very big role in making the economy work, and they were they were not paid for their labor. And um, these kind of things, you know, the the women's work of labor, and they're still relegated to the agricultural labor and to the labor of um, raising children um, with. That, that labor is not uh, remunerated economically, uh, financially, um, in the same way that men's labor often is, um, and what kind of problems that um, poses for a society, whether it's whether women have time to be um, involved in politics or to run for office, um, and, or whether they have the even economic power of, of spending power. And so those are social, I mean, those are problems of, those are questions of, um, economic structure, which obviously comes back to socialism in a way. Um, but I think, you know, for with the what, what I think is interesting when talking or learning about Guinea-Bissau is to remember to like come through it from um, a very specific lens of the reality of that specific place. And I think that's what makes those stories more interesting and and and, and a place where it needs um, a very special, like a, you know, a very different, its own solution, I guess. You know, there's people who are like, we need Guinean solutions to Guinean problems. And that's obviously true everywhere. But I think, you know, that's really, it's a good conversation that's being had in, that, in the country right now. Which is also a way for, for me to thank both of you for participating with us today um, to talk about Cabral's legacy and, and uh, contemporary politics in Guinea-Bissau. And I like that um, Tony Karen, who we commented there, uh, he stole my thunder because when, when Antonio was talking about um, what makes national culture in uh, Guinea-Bissau today? I, I was just thinking, yeah, football. And it is true, Guinea-Bissau has not. They sadly never qualified for the World Cup. And the men's team, uh, I, I, uh, I do not know the fate of the women's team, but the men's team have never qualified for the World Cup. They've, uh, they, they actually never, they used to be part of, of Portugal. They, you know, their players played for Portugal, of course. But once they did, once they could qualify, they only they only have done so for the last two African uh, uh, Cup of Nations for the the, the Afcon. So it, it's looking up for the Afcon, and so for Kini. So we're assuming it's going to look up. We're going to end on that note, and we're going to say that it is going to look up for the uh, for, for the country. So with that, I want to thank Ricky. I want to thank Antonio. Mm -hmm. I want to thank our producer Antoinette Engel, uh, myself, uh, Will Choki, and myself, uh, co-presenters. Thank you for listening in, and you can. See some highlights on the YouTube channel. You can also rewatch it on Facebook. It's also on Twitter. The link is on Twitter. And if you wait for a couple of days, you can watch it on our, on our Patreon. With that, thank you very much. Enjoy the week, people. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much.